Welcome to Annotations to Art, Politics and Life Itself. My name is Aniko Heller. My guest today is Valérie Ossouf. Valérie is a French or Parisian documentary filmmaker and artist. After leaving school, she moved to Senegal uh, for a number of years, where in 1996 she made her debut film, No Comment, The Country One Never Reaches, a documentary about people deported from France. In Dakar, she also obtained a master's degree in journalism and participated in a drama course at the National Conservatoire of Senegal. To support herself, she worked in print media and for a number of radio stations, including Le Monde, RFI and Sud FM, mainly on their culture desks. Back in Paris, she developed a number of projects dealing with the contemporary echoes of colonial history and also took a course in script writing. In 2008, she completed the co-direction of a historical documentary, Cameroon, Autopsy of an Independence, which was broadcast on France 5, TSR, and RTBF on Programme 23. Then in 2012, she completed National Identity, her first feature-length documentary. Since then, Valerie has directed many more films, both for television and the big screen, and over the years has received numerous awards. The films have been shown at festivals around the world. Throughout her career, she's also intermittently crossed over into fine art, creating a number of highly acclaimed art films and installations. I can see that Valerie has arrived, so do let me invite her in. There you are. Good to see you. <laughs> the sun is shining in Paris. Is that possible? Not really. Not, uh, not... There's a lot of light in my flat. I'm lucky for that, but it's not really sunny. That's very nice. It looks very sunny from where I'm standing. Good to see you, Valerie. Valerie, I have already introduced you briefly, so let's 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 get started straight away. Okay. Um, I mean, you have quite a distinct profile and just sort of um, uh, for full disclosure, actually, for our viewers, the way we met was in Paris quite a few years ago, I believe in 2015 or 2016, around about that time of the so-called refugee crisis, as if it ever went away. But that's a different issue. But we met back then and I saw you and experienced you as a highly committed, compassionate activist, more than a filmmaker. And I've always, but I've always known that you are, you know, a, a very uh, a good filmmaker. And so I've always been looking for an opportunity to to engage with you about you about your creative work uh, and about your documentary uh, filmmaking practice. So thank you very much for being here today, Valerie. Neocolonialism or colonialism, uh, as well as France colonial history, your own history, a feature big in your documentary work. Memory, identity, belonging and migration are recurring themes. Why did this set of issues, colonialism and decoloniality, in other words, this idea of sort of decolonizing behaviors uh, and, and, and practices, why did colonialism and decoloniality uh, in particular resonate so strongly uh, with you from an early age? Well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm happy to see you, even if it's only on Zoom. And yeah, as you recall, we met uh, not in the field of art or cinema, but um, when we were fighting against police repression. And just to specify, uh, for me, there's no refugee crisis. Um, there's a hospitality crisis. There's a fascist coming back all over Europe. But it's not a refugee crisis. I think that's important. And the other thing I wanted to mention before answering your question is that um, at that time, I had lots of doubts about the power of cinema. And that um, concrete activism changed a lot of things in my practice because before that, um, I was making films hoping that the debates that would occur through cinema might have an effect on the present. And since that period that started in 2015, um, I really consider the time frame of art and the, the time frame of 
actually being there with your body in the public space, protesting, a uh, very different pace. And what doesn't invalid the other? And there are some artists who produce activism that I respect, but there are also a lot of artists who exploit um, topics like refugee or politics uh, with public money, public money coming from the same sources that are also the sources of repression. So I think that's a, a big issue. But um, to go back to your question, I guess it's a matter of generation. I'm born in 1972. So I'm the child of those who perpetrated or suffered from colonial wars. Um, I can mention Algerian war revolution, for example. Uh, my parents were the children of those who lived World War II. So their main issue was really within that heritage and how to redress what their parents had done or suffered from. So I think the, the main answer can be generational because we are a lot of people from my generation working on this topic or from this topic, I would say. Um, the other answer I could say is that I grew up in an area, in a school that was very, very mixed. Um, there were people coming from former Yugoslavia, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, Mali, Gabon, uh, refugees from Cambodia. And I noticed institutional racism very early even from the teachers, even from my classmates' parents. So this might be also an explanation. Uh, the third answer I can give is that I lived in West Africa, Senegal, during nine years. And it was, I went by myself when I was 17. Uh, this is where I started uh, studying, working, etc. So it's part of my education. And this has a big impact because I was very welcome, despite the very heavy uh, weight that is between the two countries, France and Senegal, for obvious reasons. And the rivers, as you know, is not the case. And maybe a more personal answer can be how, for very intimate reasons, one can identify himself or herself um, or empathize at least more than identify to people who suffer from uh, rejection. That's what I would say. I mean, it's interesting, uh, Valerie, there, there is a real parallel in our lives. And I, I'm, I'm sure you're not, not aware of it because I'm sure you haven't looked at my own biography in great detail, but I... I went to Northern Ireland uh, after after finishing school, more or less, uh, and started as a practicing artist, essentially my career in Northern Ireland. And this was in the 1980s, before the Good Friday Agreement. In other words, it was during the Troubles. Um, and, and, and of course, the Troubles are a direct result of colonial UK or British history. Um, you know, the, you know, the plantation, the, the whole sort of orange movement and so on and so forth. So there was a whole, um, and so I had this, I had this kind of early experience of uh, of that kind that was so interesting to 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 realize when I when I looked at your biography that there was this sort of a, a, a parallel in the way these formative years they have they, they do shape us they have a kind of quite an influence on 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 what we do I mean what I found is is that I went in with just as many cliches as anybody would um, and the experience of actually actually living in a place like this. Uh, was quite different from what I had expected. Maybe can you talk a little bit about this? Because, and of course, then when you return, I remember, I mean, I've been away then in total, I've been away for 30 years from Germany before I eventually, because of Brexit, I went back in 2018. Um, so um, 
coming back or being away from a Germany, I always had that as a reference point. Oh, that would not happen in Germany. Oh, Germany would do this differently. Do you know all these things? And, you know, from a German punctuality, it would be this, that, and the other, which always would come out, we would do this there. And when I came back to Germany, I realized that actually the Germany I had in mind, the kind of imagined Germany was very different from the real Germany that I kind of came back to. Maybe you can talk a little bit about these two kind of transitions going from France to Senegal, and then, of course, the transition back. Well, for me, uh, it wasn't the case what you described. Um, when I came back, uh, I thought I would be back like five years maximum. And then I had two kids and I'm here for 23 years, but I hope to move again <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, but when I came back, what saddened me is that nothing has changed. I mean, everything we live now, the seeds were there for a very long time. And I feel I live in a very conservative country. The only thing that might have changed is that more people know that France is a small country. You know, I mean, this fantasy of the empire, although France still has a lot of influence on former colonial territories, is going down in people's fantasy and imagination more and more. But when I came back, it was like uh, for the new year, 2000, it hadn't changed from 91 when I left, not really. I mean, there's 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 two aspects of sort of, sort of colonial echoes that, that I experienced in Ireland. Uh, one of course is a sort of the sense of, of, of liberation and a sort of a, a, a quite, um, um, a sensibility towards any form of oppression, and I and you see this today the way Ireland, for example, relates to the Palestinian situation, mm -hmm. um, very different from the way, say, France, the mm -hmm. UK, or Germany relate to mm -hmm. it. Um, so there is a kind of a colonial kind of awareness, or South Africa for that matter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a kind of an awareness uh, that, 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 that comes with that. But there's also another side to this, which I found quite problematic in Ireland. And it's a really romantic notion of nationalism, mm -hmm. which is the, sort of the flip mm -hmm. side of liberation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What was your experience with that in Senegal? Well, I don't think Senegal is a nationalist country at all. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, these borders, how they were created uh, after Berlin Conference and all that, mm. there has been Senegambia, there's been Senemali. So the issue of territory is uh, cultural, linguistic. Of course, uh, people have a sense of their country. I mean, you see uh, mm. now the president wanted to cancel the election and there's been a protest and the elections are finally going to happen mm. due to the Constitutional Council, etc. Of course, there's a state, mm. but the state is not the only reference to identity as opposed to France, where laicity and republic became a kind of religion and a kind of belief that is very, very... Uh, very deep inside most people's heart and representation. I mean, except from anarchists, but or, or otherwise even the so-called left wing is kind of nationalist in France. So it's quite different, but I totally hear what you say because I just come back from Lithuania. I was there with uh, some members of our artist collective, School of Mutants, and the, someone said, uh, we've been colonized, and they use that word. And the fact that that word not only refers to the African continent, for example, I think it's a, it's a big progress, for example. Mm -hmm. And I see this double side where we reject nationalism mm -hmm. in a kind of uh, no-border utopia. But for some people, national identity has a different meaning because it's a freedom. No, absolutely, absolutely. And it's also the question, they, they, there are different forms of nationalism, aren't there? They're kind of wholly exclusive forms or forms of, if you like, sort of superior forms, you know, where people think that they're better or superior to others. And then there are forms of nationalism which have to do with belonging and, and so on and so forth. And I think, but of course, in this day and age, with this massive shift to the right and the rediscovery of nationalism as a, as a virtue, it's obviously a very, very difficult terrain to kind of to navigate. Um, 
in another in another interview you gave some years back, if I remember, if it was in that interview, you talk about this. I think it was in relation uh, to your to your film you made in um, uh, in Senegal. Uh, you, you mentioned that you know that, that France has no problem. Indeed, it's sort of if you like foreign policy to promote the French dream. But when when people actually want to kind of sort of act on that uh, and have a, you know like a bit of it and want to lift that French dream. And then there is this rejection or deportation or whatever it would be in the end. Can you talk a little bit about that, yeah, about that a, kind of prediction? It's a very complex issue. Um, basically, um, there's a difference between universality and universalism. And of course, more and more people are now uh, discussing and putting down uh, the hypocrisy of French universalism. And we know also that there's a big difference, let's say, between British colonialism and French colonialism, mm -hmm. because um, actually there's a famous debate between Clemenceau and Jules Ferry, for instance. Mm -hmm. And Jules Ferry was left wing, but he was the one defending colonialism. So uh, this idea of uh, the motherland uh, that would re-educate people make it even more difficult, I guess, uh, for people who were subjected to French colonialism to decolonize themselves, but it makes it even more difficult for white French people to decolonize themselves. Because, of course, the ideal of the French Revolution is a beautiful ideal, but there's something very important is that at the time of the French Revolution, uh, nationality and citizenship were two different things. So if you were a revolutionary, whether you would be Armenian or Italian, Spanish, whatever, you would have the citizen rights, vote for instance, because it was not associated. So the way the utopia or the project of universalism of the time of the late uh, 18th century was, is not the way it's been instrumental instrumentalized by uh, later governance. That, that's very, very interesting. Now, I mean, the other aspect which I find always a very difficult one to, to navigate is one's own position in relation to all of this, um, or positionality, as some, some people would, would call it. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, you know, as a sort of a, a French, a white French, a kind of, you know, quite established woman, uh, you have all the rights and you have all the privileges that come with that. Um, and of course, you also are part of that history that has granted you those uh, privileges. Um, how, how do you how do you negotiate that? I mean, how do you, um, what gives you a right? You know, this whole th notion about, you know, appropriation, what gives you a right to make the kinds of films you do um, how, how do you come to that? Um, for me, I'm talking about the history of my place from a perspective that was very situated, yet I'm a heavy... Well, just to finish the stuff before, uh, there's a word I like very much, which is pluriversalism. And it doesn't deny, you know, so when I did uh, Cameroon Autopsy of an Independence with Gaël Leroy, mm. for us, it was very clear that as French young women, we were young at the time, uh, this is part of our, our history. Mm. You see, um, in when you study the history books uh, for French school, whatever level, colonialism, is a chapter that is dissociated from the industrial revolution. And we all know that there's no industrial revolution without colonialism, for example. So we talked as French women of a, of a war that was hidden and is still hidden because the archives are classified for 120 years on that topic. 120 years is the longest time one can classify archive in a so-called democratic country. 120 years is the time to forget for generations. And we talked about a war that our country perpetrated. 
And we talked really from the perspective of French anti-colonialist filmmakers. When I did National Identity, which is a feature film about institutional racism, mm. it was the same. It was from my place as a French person in this country, mm. uh, who is in a way co-responsible for what's happening in my place, you see? Mm. But the sad thing is that I did this film so we could discuss this issue. This film has been screened in, I don't know, like 20 international film festivals and no festival in France. Mm. So my point didn't achieve itself, you know? And that's why after that and after mm. concrete activism, mm. uh, I, I took a different journey in terms of practice. Well, we, 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 we come to it. Now, the, the, the thing is, is you, um, um, I've always found it very difficult to think of myself as, as German. This isn't this isn't because I have a sort of a kind of a lack of confidence or because I would feel ashamed of German history, any of that. It's nothing to do with that. It's literally to do with a kind of an emotional attachment to place. Um, so, you know, I, I do feel very strongly as a Schwabian, which is the southwestern part of Germany. It's a region, a bit like Brittany or Normandy or whatever. It's it's a part of the, so I've very much always felt as Schwabian, but never as German. And of course, I do very much feel as European. And the moment you leave Europe, you kind of you're confronted with that head on, and to me it became very clear mm -hmm. that that's what I am culturally mm -hmm. and otherwise. So this old idea of being German really kind of for me, for my own identity, really kind of falls out of the equation, and not as I say as a political statement or as part of some ideology, but really just at that very basic sort of humane emotional level. How how do you, how is it for you? But you know, in the I, I wrote it because in the introduction of my film on Abderrahman, I write. Mm -hmm to be sent from somewhere precise. Oh no, sorry. Uh, I write so badly, you see, that I can't even read myself. But basically it's the idea of Césaire that uh, is the particular of the universal. So you're both from somewhere very precise, yet from anywhere, you know? And uh, it's like Glissant said, act in your place, think with the world you know, and each place contains the world as it's connected. Mm. So for me, one doesn't dispute the other. Mm. It's a dialectic, this thing. And of course, when one's travel, uh, one gets to know one's own culture um, even more in contrast, you know what I mean? Mm. But yet one can be much closer to somebody from another gender and a place 10,000 kilometers away than from one's neighbor. Mm -hmm. And identity is something that is very linked for me. I, I'm kind of Marxist materialist in that matter. Mm -hmm. It's very linked to um, power struggle and oppression. So depending whether it's situated in economy, in gender, in race, etc., etc., mm -hmm. uh, you feel stronger one on the other side because the ultimate aim is equality. Equality allows us to have a conversation. Otherwise, if I depend on you or you depend on me, it fakes the whole stuff. And to build a space of equality in a totally unequal world, society, whatever, mm. for me is the challenge, both in activism and in cinema, and both with the people you film than with the spectators. And for me, that's the biggest challenge. Well, this is a, this is a really this is a really um, this really kind of for me kind of gets to the kind of the core of one's practice. Really, um, is is this issue of uh, of equality uh, and inclusion? I mean, it, it that, that that really is 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 kind of a really really interesting thing. I mean, I, I I've traveled a little bit, and of course, when you kind of stay within a kind of a particular strata of European society, equality still matters a lot, but it's quite an abstract. Uh, it's very different when you, it's abstract in a sense that, uh, com comparatively abstract, compared to if you say go to, to Kenya or whatever, and you engage with people and you you, you realize that there's a kind of a, um, a disparity, which makes, you know, the, the person you speak to very often very, very vulnerable. 
um, and, 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 and the inequality is just very pronounced. Um, but once you have, in a way, experienced that, then you kind of you you kind of go back to situations where it's more hidden or you know not so obvious, and you kind of begin to realize uh, that, that these kind of power structures, you know, sort of exist not only between north and south and between rich and poor, but they exist in our everyday lives. Um, mm. and, and it's 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 an interesting it, it's and so so when you build a practice um th th this is really some is a kind of a core issue isn't it and i, I want, and especially for somebody like you who kind of bridges these worlds and kind of goes back and forth between those worlds how do you how do you deal with this with this vast differences in opportunity in in, in access to mobility in access to rights uh i, I mean the, the difference in privilege uh, how, how do you deal with this? How do you somehow try to kind of balance that? Uh, sometimes it drives me nuts and very, very sad. Um, like, But I'm not talking about traveling. I'm talking about really within the same day in my city, Paris. I mean, this is the seventh richest country of the world. I think now they have statistics like there's one person out of, then I don't know what who doesn't eat properly in this country, you know. Mm. I mean, they are building new laws to force people like me mm. do volunteer working bullshit 15 hours a week. Mm. Uh, they're still mixing work, employment, and salary. Mm. Uh, I see uh I see despair every day uh next door when we met in those street camps. I mean, the idea to go to a um, screening or opening of an exhibition the same day mm. and just take the metro 10 minutes and see that people who live in the same city uh, are so apart and are living in such a denial. Mm. And as an artist, you have the privilege, as you say, of mobility, not only geographical mobility, but also social mobility. Because especially when you're a documentary filmmaker, mm. you meet politicians, you meet beggars, you meet every kind of people of the society. Mm. And this is a very complex ethical and psychological issue for me. Mm. Um, it gives me vertigo. It makes me really wonder on what is my function in society. Um, is it to have a space for a little expression so that there's no revolution, for example? Like, you know, how uh, artists exist sometimes to kind of, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, how can I say, soup up? I don't know how you say in English. There, there, there is a kind of, a, you, in English, you might say like a, a pressure valve. It's like this pressure yeah, exactly. cooker. Exactly. That kind of lets off steam exactly. so that it never really explodes. You know? And and so it it really questions me on uh, our role, you know, our function uh, within these disparities. Because a lot of people like to talk about issue of representation, but not about issue of real inequalities. You know what I mean? And it's not only a matter of gaze. It's a real matter that affects people's uh, potential lengths of life, you know? And about mobility, I've been a geographic mobility, I mean. I've, for me, it's really, and very sincerely, something as um, essential as a school or housing. Uh, because if I hadn't, gone to Senegal when I was 19, I don't know what would have happened to me, but maybe something very bad. Uh, and um, that's why the right for mobility is my principal fight. You know, then some people are very involved in ecology and I admire them a lot or on other issues, mm -hmm. but that's the thing that's always be consistent in my life is uh, to fight for everyone to benefit from this right of mobility that shouldn't be a white or rich people's privilege. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. It's, um, uh, it's, 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 it's a, it's a very, very difficult one to, uh, you know, to, to, to deal with. And I think, um, it's just as there's no, 
right answer on a single right answer. I mean, in, in my experiences, you you end up having to, to negotiate that in every situation anew. It's not something that you can have a kind of a, a, a kind of a rule and you apply that and then you feel good about it mm. because it it's one of these things that somehow always come back to to haunt you. They they it's it's a very it's a very very difficult. And of course, there's different kinds of you know sort of inequalities or injustices. I mean, there are those which are terrible, but we can do something about them. Mm. And these are the kind of injustices everybody's focusing on because we can see be seen to to do good work, can't we? We you know we can spend, we can donate some money, you know, all these charities that can do all this good stuff and they make the world a better place. And these are injustices that we're allowed to touch, but they're kind of structural injustices which are fundamental to capitalism, and we cannot touch them. You cannot touch them. There are some some mantras, some fundamental principles, um, like this idea that there are kind of um, that growth, economic growth, is an absolute God given right. Uh, you know, the, the idea that we can, you know, that we have a right to bring our products, our services, our industries to every corner of this world. Uh, the idea that trade is more important than human mobility, and we can go on and on and on. And these are these are principles that cannot be touched by no one. Uh, they are sort of hegemonic um, and they define the capitalist sort of superstructure that essentially keeps us in our place. And to be very honest, I'm, I'm, I'm neither a socialist nor a communist, but capitalism is at the root cause of really much of that, um, as it is one of the root causes of colonialism, of course. Um, and and so so yes, I absolutely agree. This idea that the arts are very much in the service of this, by and large, and that very few artists actually step outside of this, and that yeah, there is a massive contradiction between what artists say and do and the funding they use to do it. Uh, absolutely, the problem is these contradictions are not meant to be solved. They're not even meant to be addressed because you know the answers to them nobody really wants to hear. Um, so I, I'm, 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 I'm sort of totally with you on this. I mean, you may want to have a look at, I've kind of published about, I don't know, probably a year ago now, like my sort of instant opera manifesto, which is sort of, you know, an idea that, you know, the theater of performance and opera, uh, you know, should be conducted, should come something very, very different. It's a kind of a, a revolutionary uh, sort of piece of uh, um uh, a piece of writing um but but yes absolutely this is this, we work within those constraints you know as artists as you know documentary filmmakers unless we work for the system um we are basically caught in it and it's very hard to uh to to navigate it and yes we come up against these situations all the time and somehow it's corroding you know somehow it's corrupting all of us because we all have to make those compromises along the way, don't we? I mean, it's it's it, it is quite it is quite sad. Now, um, yeah, and especially you see that most most uh, when I meet filmmakers, for instance, I always ask them what's their economy, um, and you realize that. But even in documentary, I mean, documentary is way less expensive than narrative fiction filmmaking but still very expensive cinema when you compare to an art like painting or writing or other mediums you know and um, people are always I don't know in Germany but in France when you ask people how do you make a living there's always a kind of cringe like you know it's almost rude to ask the question there's yeah. no really transparency on wages on artist fees for example I mean I'm discovering another sphere, and when I, I look at artist fee, I'm like, okay, what do they live on, you know? And then you realize most people own their flat, or they have a husband, or a wife, or a partner, or a parent that is rich, etc. Mm -hmm. So it's always, and in documentary also, mm -hmm. you see 90% of documentary are people who are richer than the people they film. Filming them, most most of documentary are about outcasts or people on the margin, etc. And this is also a, a a big question. Then the thing is, uh, in your practice, very concretely, uh, how do you share the money? How do you spend the money? 
um, very, very concrete thing. And then about uh, which money we accept or not, I had a discussion with a random filmmaker recently. And I was like, I was like pissed off on all these people accepting money from Saudi Arabia, because now Saudi Arabia is really spreading a lot of money, especially on so-called African and Arab cinema. Like a lot. And in Cannes, they were very welcome, etc. And it was exactly when um, a thousand bodies of Ethiopian people were discovered at the border of Saudi Arabia, who had been raped and and tortured and killed. And we know it's one of the most racist countries of the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I was talking, and so I, I met this random filmmaker, very interesting. We did a great film called Infura, the film. And I was, I'm, I was like, oh, this guy must be an ally. Uh, so I started bringing this issue, and he told me, you know, as a Rwandan, considering the French responsibility on the genocide of my people, which is to remind, uh, to recall to people, one million person killed in a hundred days in 1994. There's no money that can be more dirty than French money. And it doesn't mean that me, for me, is the same because uh, I'm, I have public money access in my countries. I can uh, tell myself that public money belongs to everybody, whatever, you know. But it's totally true and legitimate to think like this from his perspective. No, 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 absolutely. It's, and, 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 and of course, um, I mean, when I, when I grew up uh, in, in the 1970s and 80s, um, this was a very, very different world. This war, you know, th this was like during the Cold War. It, it was a simple world. There was good people that lived in the West and bad people that lived in the East. You know, you, we, we, you, you know. Um, but it was also the post-war years. Now, what the interesting thing about post-war, of course, is, is the catastrophe is behind us. You know, post-war, the Holocaust behind us, the, the world wars behind us, all the bad stuff. We've set up all these grand institutions, the UN, the WTO, the World Health Organization, you name it. We came out with the Refugee Convention, with the Human Rights Convention, we've done all the good stuff. We became multilateralists because we're kind of doing things differently now. It's very, very interesting. I remember I had a, a sort of a, a kind of a, a, a pen friendship with a, a very young French lady from Toulouse in sort of like the early 1910s. 11, 12, 13. And I remember her sending me an email, I think it was like, you know, you know, 2013, 14. And she, for the first time, used that term. I'd never heard of it before. It really resonated. She said, we're living in a pre-war period. And I thought that was so interesting because when you switch from a post-war mindset with the catastrophes behind us to a pre-war period with the catastrophes ahead of us, it changes everything. It changes mindsets. People become more guarded. You know, people become more kind of polarized. Um, people become more distrustful. The shadows go down. People become closed in. Uh, and it's very interesting. And, and you know, there's very little room for big ideas. And people withdraw into their national kind of borders and to, into their nationalist kind of mindsets. It's a very, very interesting thing. And, of course, I'm not suggesting that there's going to be a war tomorrow or like another or kind of a world war tomorrow or whatever uh, or the day after. But we are past that kind of medium kind of point um, and we're heading towards a catastrophe environmental social economic you name it and it's it you know we, we all feel it but of course we also some people also know that the very system that is kept in place through constitutions through law the rule of law um, through parliaments through political parties through liberal democracy the very system that's been created for stability's sake is the very system that's going to push us over the edge. And it's the question is how, as artists, as filmmakers, you know, how can we, and this is exactly the question you've asked earlier in the contradiction, how can we, you know, operate in this environment without contributing to that dynamic? I don't have like an answer for that. What I know is that making art is not an excuse not to make also something else. Okay. When you think of, uh, for example, writers like Romain Gary, 
who engage in the resistance and many others. Um, so uh, are the intellectuals uh, of the 60s, 70s, although a lot of them have been totally blind on Stalinism in my country, for example. But when you see how Michel Foucault was uh, very involved in um, the fight for the rights of prisoners, for example, and you know Shlomo Sand, the Israeli uh, writer, mm. he wrote a book called The End of the French Intellectual, mm. and it shows how from being a counterpower, he says intellectual, but it applies totally to artists as well, uh, intellectuals became uh, behind the power, you know, and it's really obvious in our so-called philosophers who are mainstream and mediatized in France. So uh, for me, and that's what I like in activism, in activism, there's no artist, there's no bakery guy, there's no, uh, you know, we don't care about which job or activity, because much more than a job being an artist, being an artist is a choice of life. It's every second of your life choice that you made, right? But when you engage in collective actions, where nobody knows each other's last name, etc., and where uh, you let go of um, this uh, cult of individuality, which is complicated for an artist because, you know, um, for me, there's something uh, very beautiful in that. And I think uh, being an artist uh, shouldn't be the umbrella for people when something is happening in their space to, you know, to act and to revolt, you know, really. And we have a lot of examples of that. Absolutely. Um, so, so so last question on, on, on that subject of sort of coloniality. I mean, we're, we're kind of talking about colonialism in a kind of in a broader sense here, mm -hmm. in, in a sense, almost like something that has seeped into uh, really, uh, you know, our way of life. In fact, it's mm -hmm. part of the kind of operating logic mm -hmm. uh, of, 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 of capitalism. Um, now, how has your own way of relating to sort of colonialism and your own colonial history as a French uh, woman, how has that changed over the years, if it has? The thing, <clears throat> I don't think it, it changed. I know my practice has changed, uh, but my uh, vision of uh, French colonialism, it did not change at all. Is What I'm happy about is that now it's really part of the debate. And when I started working, I did my first film very young. I was like 23 or 24. Um, it wasn't in the public debate here. And now a lot, lot, lot of uh, intellectuals, artists, people, politicians even are addressing the issue. That's what has changed. But the core of it hasn't changed for me at all. But, but of course, I uh, mean, but the is... thing when you do document, historical documentary on those uh, chapters <laughs> is that the only archive that you have access to is colonial archive. So how do you do anti-colonialist work with colonialist uh, visions? And that's also a, a thing that makes you um, really have to, uh, it's very interesting uh, uh, to, to, to find a, a dispositive, a process in your work that uh, allows you to, to readdress things with the material that is from your antagonists. And also, what do you consider and, as an archive? Because maybe uh, craft by somebody is also an archive, not only what is um, uh, stated as archive from the oppressor. You've always been involved in, in, in sort of, every so, I mean, like, you know, it, it's interesting because yeah, you are a documentary filmmaker, but you've always had a sort of an artistic sensibility. Um, and um, and if I understand this correctly, in the last I don't know how many years, you've really this has become a, a real strand, a real kind of part of your practice uh, in the way it's not always been. Um, what what made you kind of develop that that strand in 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 your work? And and um, um, 
And how has that developed over the last five to ten years? Uh, it's very recent. Uh, okay, sorry, every time I have two answers for one question. Um, the objective thing is that uh, I have a friend, Amedine Khan, who is an artist, and invited me to join the collective he co-founded with Stefan Berlebotero, which is called School of Newtons, and it's a collective artistic platform. And they invited me to join in 2019. So you see, it's really recent. Mm -hmm. And with them, we've done uh, several uh, exhibitions. We have now one in London and one in Leeds. Mm -hmm. And this made me so happy for many reasons. Mm -hmm. But the main one, uh, apart from the collective that I, I really love working like this, mm. is that um, it, uh, it's so much lighter than film. Mm. And, you know, for fi to finance a film, even a small one, mm. you rewrite your stuff mm. like 20 times mm. uh, because the funding comes through writing, although you work in a different medium. Mm. So it's good for people who are good at school, <laughs> and which is not necessarily my case. Mm. And also by the time you rewrote your thing 20 times, mm. you almost don't want to do it again because the, that desire has been killed. And with the thing we do, we agree with a place to make something and we make it. And I work with this, all the videos I've made with School of Newtons, I make them with a phone by myself. I don't need finance, I don't need a crew, I don't need, and this has freed me a lot. And uh, it allows me also to try out things that then might be developed in films and long-term works mm -hmm. and uh and actually mm -hmm. when there's something you want to express mm -hmm. uh me i always use different forms i work mostly around the same questions that are evolving through the years mm -hmm. in 25 years mm -hmm. but whether it's fiction documentary art installation mm -hmm. um finally maybe one day i will write a book you know it's it's not the medium that is the most important for me, although each medium has its language that one needs to explore, you know. But uh, so, yeah, I would say it's the collective and it's the chance that my friends gave me to join uh, to join this group. And now I have also other art projects um, on my own. I mean, this is a really interesting point, this whole issue of availability or of accessibility, uh, you know, of immediacy. Um, and of course, the whole funding structure, also for large scale or expensive art projects, no different, yeah. um, is you're looking at a time horizon of 18 to 24 months, if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, you can't just have an idea and six months later it's done. Yeah. Um, so you're working on, 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 on a kind of on, on a time horizon that doesn't really work in a kind of in a creative uh, yeah. sort of uh, practice. That's the one thing. And the other thing, of course, is back to the funding itself. You know, where does it come from? What does it stand for? What does it do? And of course, if, it, you know, if you're focused on this, then, I mean, we've all caught ourselves to it, haven't we? Oh, that could sell. Oh, we could get funding for this. Mm. And then the, this is a funding mentality creeps mm. into, into creative development mm. because, because it opens up sort of like, you know, like, this does. Oh, look, if we do it like this, I'm sure we could get some funding for that. Or if, you know, and, and this kind of thinking, in a way, is I think is quite problematic. problematic. Yeah. Uh, you know, every single one of those little decisions isn't in and by itself. Yeah. They're kind of harmless. They're kind of yeah. you know, but cumulatively, you're essentially sort of like acting out a kind of a funding agenda uh, for 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 some kind of agency or, or funding body. So that's I totally uh, you know I, I totally I totally get that. Um, now, um, and of course, you, you can have... Now, the other thing is, is, is it's interesting, but I was talking to, uh, to Sean McAllister, an English filmmaker. If you don't know him, I, I would like to introduce you to him at some point. He's, he's, he's brilliant. Uh, he's, 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 he's done amazing films. Uh, um, I mean, even, even people like Werner Herzog think he's great, although he doesn't really kind of, you know, he thinks he's crazy. Um, he's on the left, uh, uh, you know, probably on the hard left. Uh, but he's an amazing filmmaker and he's been struggling to get funding because again he's english he's white and he's now in his late i don't know late 50s early 60s possibly 
And, and there's now a new generation of commissioning editors. Mm. They have their own people. And you're basically starting again from scratch. The whole host of... But of course, he also has a very small camera because he works in a very intimate way. Um, and so he had to strike a special deal with the BBC, I believe it was, or Channel 4, the other two main commissioning uh, buddies for mm. his work, that he's allowed to use that camera. You know, it's, it's 4K, it's perfectly fine to broadcast, but there's a sort of a kind of a... A, a weird kind of um, thing that it has to be even better than that. And so, of course, that drives up cost, that drives up complexity. Um, and, and I mean, you could make films so much cheaper, couldn't you? You could make films so much more on the fly, but that's not in the interest of those, you know, you know, uh, broadcasters. They do want to have that wall uh, that separates those who have the funding from those who don't. It's it's a very very interesting thing, and it's a it's 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 part of the power structure. Um, mm. But on the uh, on, on on the issue of the art itself, on the practice, um, I I kind of think of you as a documentary type person. You've done a degree in journalism. Uh, you have made some beautiful documentary films. And yes, you've gone into art and you're a great artist too. But I'm doing a documentary also. I, I didn't let go of documentary. I'm doing I, a film at the moment. I started shooting last November, December, and I'm going back to finish the shoot next July, but uh, in a very small economy uh, because the two experiences I had with French television were awful, like really awful. Also, I'm writing... Uh, you know, like these big dossiers for bigger feature stuff that takes for ages and I don't know if they will happen, although I hope so. Mm -hmm. But it's through the art practice that I went back on documentary with a different mentality, you know. Um, and uh, I journalism, it was really just to get a job because uh, no one is uh, providing me. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not from a rich family that would support me, but I was never interested in journalism. I read a lot of news and all that, but um, the the idea that one doesn't assume his or her subjectivity was always a big problem for me. And that's where documentary differs from journalism a lot because documentary filmmaking is a... Uh, is a point of view, you know, a singular point of view. And that's why nowadays, unfortunately, uh, TV is impossible with documentary film. They talk about documentary, but they don't produce any documentaries anymore on television. They produce journalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, still, there is a sort of, when you think about documentary film, you know, whether you think about it as a journalistic practice or an artistic practice, there is this kind of documentary element in it. Um, and and I, what, I, what I'm trying to get to is, is, is do you approach documentary filmmaking fundamentally differently from making art? I'm not talking about the funding. I'm not talking about all, all that. I'm talking about your kind of your mindset, the way you approach it. Um, Give you an example. I mean, um, I have a sort of a bit of a background in the theater, and you get a wide spectrum of different kind of you know theater makers or, or, or directors. Um, in two weeks' time, I'm um, I'm having a, an occasions uh, a dialogue with uh, one of the guys from a, a company called uh, Rimini Protocol. They're kind of like they're doing sort of documentary theater. They're very big in, mm -hmm. in Germany, I believe, internationally known as well. Now, they're approaching theater from that documentary sort of mindset mm -hmm. perspective, and still they're making theater. Now, I wonder mm -hmm. when you think about your art, are you approaching this as a documentary practitioner, or are you approaching this as a kind of a different kind of artist? But uh, it's very interesting how documentary now is in other... Uh, because I met a documentary philosopher She's so interesting, Christiane Voller, mm -hmm. and she does philosophy that she calls documentary philosophy mm -hmm. as a sense of, she meets people, she works, for example, in Lesbos, in Greece, on the island, mm -hmm. and she's not like getting like testimonies or information with people, mm -hmm. but through the talk, concepts get built, you know? And I have also a friend, Arnaud Bertina, who is a novelist, mm -hmm. and he does documentary literature. So I think we did a distinction that was probably untrue, mm -hmm. and that is being blurred more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very interesting 
uh, no, the difference between so far, because it's changing, otherwise it would be dead meat and it would be boring. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is when I prepare a feature film, but not the one I'm doing now in Rwanda. Uh, I spend years on research. You know, years on reading everything and preparing, 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 da -da -da -da. where uh, what we do with School of Newtons, like we're doing a work on Jonas Mekas and Usman Semben. Of course, we read all the books, but we, how can I say, we liberate ourselves from a certain, um, how can I say, a certain uh, um, academic way, very much quicker, you know? That's the difference, I would say. It's more in terms of the, the time you spend doing and the time you spend thinking and writing before doing. And that changed totally the, the nature of the stuff. But the documentary I'm doing now, for example, I started shooting before writing it. It's the first time I do that. And it's such an interesting process because the, the writing becomes really a writing in order to, to have my question of how I'm going to make it more precise. Not a writing for funding, not a writing for theory, you know, a writing like a step of the fabrication that can be intertwined with moments of shooting, moments of editing, go back to writing. Mm -hmm. So, but this is because it's a very cheap film. Uh, for, me, uh, for, for, for me, and I probably, I probably have a very narrow view of documentary practice. So you, you, you know, please do, you know, sort of like uh, correct me there. But uh, for me, there's kind of two elements which I consider kind of key, not the only elements, but uh, to me, they kind of need to be in the mix for it to have a documentary quality. Um, one is, is it has to essentially place the audience, the viewer, uh, in a position of witnessing. Yeah, so the, the, the viewer has to witness something uh, in the same way. And of course, because it's 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 kind of like in a documentary film, it's it's kind of filmed already. It's not a kind of a it's not a live thing. Um that witnessing can be at various levels. It can be happening at a mental level, at a you know, at a visual and it can be happening so but there's an element of witnessing which I think is really, really important. You don't have that in a Shakespeare play, yeah. Um, but you need to have that in a documentary play. There needs to be an element of being at the scene of witnessing. That's I think that's but that's from... in observational documentaries, which is only one segment of documentary cinema. Because if you see from the beginning of documentary filmmaking history, basically there's I make it a bit uh, you know schematic, but there's two families. There is the family like Flaherty. And there is the Nanook uh, Eskimo, mm -hmm. and there are Wiseman later, you know, Frederick Wiseman or Pierre Simon, or, mm -hmm. and there is the the documentary of editing, mm -hmm. Diga Vertov, Chris Marker, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think uh, what you're talking about in terms of witnessing mm -hmm. is really more linked to the observational documentary, mm -hmm. and even that border now has been blurred. Mm -hmm. Like one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, he died. Mm. His name was Michael Glauger from Austria. Or oh, he called it mm. a cinema of interference. Mm. Don't know how he called it exactly, but basically even in this so-called catching the present in a space, uh, there can be a mise-en-scène and directing, not only talking about the directing of the frame, what is in the frame, which is not, on which angle, etc., which is basic, but also uh, blurring the idea of the actor and the character and the person. Because as soon as you are filmed, you become a character and you are also active in that process as a person being filmed. Uh, although 
what we talked about, which is the power structure, the, the domination that can occur between who is filmed and who films, mm -hmm. makes it that a lot of people who are filmed don't have enough keys to really have an agency on the way they will be represented. Mm -hmm. But it's this tension between the person who is filmed and the person who films that, again, we go back to this issue of how do you create an mm -hmm. ideal space uh, that is yet modest of equality and balance without letting go of your agency as an author and as an artist. I, mean, I think my know? point, yeah, I think my point is this. Um, when you when you are making a documentary, uh, you you take on a certain ethical responsibility towards the subject that you are mm -hmm. documenting. Yes. Um, so um, so you're not having the kind of the creative license of making that person into something he or she isn't, or to make a place into something that this place isn't. There is a kind of a, an implicit commitment. You, you, you just show what you think this person or this place is. That, that's right. But, but the, this person or this place. That's right, but there is this fundamental commitment to to attempting that, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, like and almost like I said, there there is one genre, of course, which kind of bends that and kind of goes beyond that, and that is kind of quite, a, and this whole idea of sort of creative nonfiction, where you kind of blur those lines, and I think it's legitimate, but then it's got to be clear that that's what it yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Because you're you're then entering a different terrain, don't yeah, you? Yeah. So ethical contract with the viewer. If you don't give the viewer the key that this is um, uh, I don't know how to say in English, I'm sorry, but uh, if you have to give the keys to the viewer of the, the, the nature of the object that the person is seeing, of course, is watching. Absolutely. It's, it's Absolutely. a double contract with the persons you film and with the with the viewer. But for example, in last October, I shot material for an art installation video in multi-screen. And I was in Kinshasa. And in Kinshasa, there are two gangs fighting, the Arabs and the Yankees. That they call themselves this way. Okay. And then some people uh, define themselves as the Russians, the British the Germans, the Scots, whatever. And they're all Congolese, 100% from Kinshasa. So uh, I decided to create an installation which is called Kinshasa, capital of the whole world. Uh, and I have my representation of these people who are already in representation, you see? So I don't feel I betray their choice. But my point is not to investigate or anything like this. It's also uh, the the thing whether you work on investigation mode or not. And then also this ethical contract varies considering the status of the person you film. For example, I filmed the former prime minister, Pierre Mesmer, who is one of the architects of the Cameroonian war, which uh, decimated 10% of the population in Cameroon at the time. Uh, this man, I don't have the same contract with him as I have with a victim of that war. Him, I don't mind tricking because he's a politician. So it's also a, a change in terms of this ethical fact. There's just a last, my second kind of condition that I consider important for the convention. The first one is kind of the, the kind of the truthfulness towards the subject, the witnessing. Um, and and the, the, the second aspect is closely related to that, and that has to do with reality, a social, a realism. Now, what is important to me there isn't so much a objective reality, which we both know doesn't exist uh, as such, um, but what really to me matters, and that's part of that contract again, is the reality of the subject. Not my reality so much, mm. but because I will always bring that in and hopefully through kind of a kind of a transparency in my own positionality, mm. um, I make it very clear as we talked about this, you know, at length earlier and where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. But 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 it's also uh, about, uh, it's also about uh, the kind of the, 
if you like, um, the reality of, of of the subject that I'm engaging with. And just as I, in a way, have to be transparent about my own reality, I, I also have to, and again, that's, I think, a really essential element in documentary, I have to respect my subject's reality. Mm -hmm. And if that person or is or, or whatever is crazy and has an absolute LSD reality, then that's the reality. Mm -hmm. But that that uh, that has to be part of it. Yeah, is, but is that... if, if you film somebody who is perceived as crazy or you perceive as crazy, um, maybe what is interesting for an audience is to get rid of judgment and try to share the perception of that person so it's i would say it's a matter really of respect just simple respect no um the people that uh give you because they give you and also not making them hope and this is very important that a film is going to change their life you know, or, or when I was in China, life, yeah. it was so easy to film people in China. I was so surprised. Anybody, you meet somebody, they invite you in their place. You can go with your camera. And I say, how come you let me film you like this? You, We didn't talk first. And they say, the person said, we are more than one billion people. If your camera points at me, it's my luck. And I say, which luck? You know, we have to be very clear also with that contract. And it's not so easy because we are dependent on these people to make our films. Well, I mean, this was really, really, really interesting. And, and I hope that, I, I feel that we could go on for quite some time. And I, I do hope that we can actually carry on that dialogue at some point because I think it heralds a follow-up. So we, we, we talk about that, but thank you very much. Do you have any advice for young documentary filmmakers starting out today? Uh, yes. The kind of mindset or how they should approach their craft. Me, uh, my advice is for them to do. Because the best school is to do and to cut and to edit and to do again. And I, I although I teach sometimes, but in really practical workshops, uh, I don't know any best schooling than doing, really. And now with the tools we have today, we discussed them before. I mean, it's much more accessible. Mm -hmm. And also about time, to take the time. Because a lot of uh, young people I meet, um, they watch things that are so in a pace that is so, 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 so fast that sometimes they are not patient in the watching, you know. So really, uh, the issue is not a subject. It's how... It's really the how that matters. Really, so don't go for the most sensational thing. Mm -hmm. You go in the corner of the street, depending on how you watch it, there is 100 stories there. So to focus really on how it relates to them personally, really why they want to do what they want to do, mm -hmm. and how they can share with us the most singular way to watch other things so we enter in their heart, their mind and their eyes. Valerie, thank you very, very much. It's been thank really you. nice talking to you. Um, yeah, as I said, hopefully we catch up in the near future. But in the meantime, good luck with all your projects for thank this you. year. Uh, and, and thank you very much for coming on to Annotations. It's thank been a great you. pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.